episode 11 of Refugee Disability. Today it's Amy Oven, Sam Parsons and me, and we're joined by Ivan Fliss. Hello, Hi, Ivan. Hello. <laughs> Hi, hello, hello. Um, Ivan has just finished his PhD at Utrecht in history and philosophy of science. And he's a, so he's another awesome ECR that we're introducing to the world. Hi, Ivan. How are you doing? Uh, hello, I'm doing pretty well, and I'm very happy to be uh, here with you guys. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna let Sophia do the talking because I have an inherent, um, how do you say, uneasy feeling about talking to philosophers. Oh, <laughs> you you should you shouldn't feel like that. I think because I like I think when you do interdisciplinary research, you have this really a huge problem with professional identities. So I wouldn't call myself a philosopher, really, I think. It's always like this identity of difference depending to whom you're talking to, right? So I have a master's in psychology, but I did my PhD in history and philosophy of science. And um, I think I'm a bit more on the historian side than the philosopher anyways. I don't know how you feel about historians. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're I, I, less scared than about philosophers. More, Why are you I, uh, scared of philosophers, Amy? Yeah, I'm scared of you, okay? Just, just shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I feel like, you know when people meet you and you say you're a psychologist and they're like, wow, can you read my mind? That's kind of how I feel like when somebody comes up and they're like, hi, I'm a philosopher, and I'm just like, wow, are you going to tell me that I don't exist? <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. <laughs> More like philosopher yeah. of science, where you can yeah. almost legitimately turn around and say, "Yeah, you're just doing things wrong." Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm reading. <laughs> I'm reading the the Spellman book uh, at the moment, with which is not Spellman, Man. Deborah Mayer. Mayer book. <laughs> <laughs> Sam's organizing my life today, um, and yeah, so I'm 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 hoping to be able to follow this conversation a bit. A bit more than I, I would have a couple of weeks ago. Well, I still haven't read that book, so you have an upper hand on me. So don't, don't. Uh, I, don't I, I think there's no reason to be intimidated. If oh. if somebody should be intimidated, that's me. I don't do empirical research in psychology, and I, I keep talking about it. So, uh, um, yeah. Well, but I mean, as Sam um, is afraid that you're going to turn around and tell us that we're doing everything wrong. Do you think psychology is doing everything wrong? Oh yeah, that's. I think that's a good question. Um, so when when I started doing, so I, I did my master's in psychology, and um, I knew that I wanted to do academic research in psychology, but I became extremely frustrated with most of the subdisciplines that I, I would get into, get more interested in, basically. Um, so when I was when I was looking for PhDs, I basically went into history and philosophy of science because I felt like psychology was really going in a wrong wrong direction. Like, um, so the PhD that I got into in, in the Netherlands in the end, um, it had an open call where they were calling for any kind of project in history and philosophy of science. So you had like applicants from everything from like history of astronomy to philosophy of mathematics or, or, or whatnot. Um, and I wrote a proposal under the title, Is Psychology a Theoretically Balkanized Field? Um, and I was quite a loaded title of a pretty frustrated young person, right? <laughs> what does, what does <laughs> balkanized mean? Because it, it definitely doesn't yeah, mean so, the Balkans. So, yeah, yeah, so I, I'm, so I'm, I mean, obviously it was a bit tongue-in-cheek. I come from, from Croatia, so from, from what they nowadays call it the Western Balkans. Uh, so it was a tongue-in-cheek jokes among my friends, like if you manage to get a, into a PhD on something as abstract on philosophy and history with balkanized in the title, it's going to be funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, um, it was so I was at the time I was reading a lot of, I don't know, like classical philosophy of science like um, Thomas Kuhn or um, Paul Feyerabend, Lakatos and etc. And um, when I was reading um, this kind of philosophy of science, I really felt like psychology is not really living up to the standards of these philosophers. I felt like when you read this philosophy of science, what are we even doing here, right? Um, so it was really, 
I, I had a really bad opinion of psychology, I think, five years ago, uh, as I was finishing my master's. Has it gotten After, any better? Uh, yeah, exactly. After my PhD research, I mean, um, I, I'm not as optimistic, but I feel like uh, it's not as bad as I thought of it before. So I can, I can imagine myself doing psychological research again. And I think like the whole open open science thing and the reproducibility crisis and all the initi initiatives around it are really really great things to be involved in. Like there's there's some kind of a sense of we're doing something about the problems that exist and that have existed for quite a while, and there is some kind of future for for many of the research fields that are that are in this bad state, I think. And many people recognize that bad state for, for quite a long time, right? So you said that you were frustrated uh, with these uh, with these subfields that, that you were getting into. Um, and, you know, as you say, that they're sort of in bad states. So was, was that mainly because of the way that they, um, that they were doing science as well? Yeah, so, so how, I, I remember, I remember like, um, so I wrote my master thesis on um, null hypothesis significance testing. Nice. <laughs> that was in, in 2013. And um, so this was at a time, so I was at a University of Zagreb and uh, University of Zagreb is all kinds of things, but it's not really an exceptionally good research university in the grand scheme of things. Um, but I managed to get a supervisor who was really supportive and she really wanted to learn more with me about this thing. Um, and I realized that as I was writing this master thesis, I realized um, there is this really prolonged, very long debate about null, null hypothesis significance testing that morphed into this whole frequentist versus Bayesians by the end of the 20th century uh, uh, thing. So there, it, it has been going on for quite a while, but psychologists have just ignored it, right? Um, so psychology has just been going on with null hypothesis significance testing in all these sub-disciplines. And not only psychology, it, it's also biomedicine and it's also many other, other fields that are not necessarily related to psychology. So I felt like, yeah, it's, if, if, we can, if we as communities of researchers can ignore something uh, that is flawed and that is known to be flawed for such a long time, disregarding it completely, I think, to a, to a certain extent, then I think our science in a re is in a really bad state. Um, and the thing is that, like, when I was just doing this work on null hypothesis significance testing, it was really basic, I think. I mean, when I started, uh, when I started my PhD and when I started discussing actual philosophers and actual historians, I, I realized that these topics are much larger than psychology and much larger than our little sub-disciplines, right? So they're being discussed for, for a very long while. And it, it goes into some, some very big things, right? Like uh, uh, what is scientific rationality or what is scientific objectivity? Um, how do communities of scientists produce uh, standards and norms for what is objective and what is truth and et cetera, et cetera. These big questions that make us scared of philosophers, right? Yeah, I, I think if you if we we are not recording on video today, but I think you could have seen that it was a respectful nod of uh, pure respect, but also a lot of scare. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, for me, it was very liberating in that sense, like doing this research. And so what I ended up doing my PhD project is was on um, in the end. Um, on uh, disciplinary formation of psychology from World War II to today, basically. So for the past 70 years or so. And um, I was looking at how do methods relate to what psychological research is and to the identity of psychologists in the varied sub-disciplines. And uh, this kind of a project, it's really weird, I think, for uh, from the perspective of historians of science nowadays. Uh, like. Historians of science usually don't do these kinds of big projects that produce like large narratives of whole disciplines. That's a bit outdated. Um, and it was a struggle for me to find my way in this. I think it really shows that I was a psychologist when I be began the project because I was asking the kind of questions that psychologists would ask to, to historians and philosophers. 
Uh, and as what, I was, what are the, what, sorry, just what are yeah. the differences uh, between how psychologists ask questions versus philosophers yeah. or historians? Yeah. So I, I so for example, um, I thought that you could give a really. I mean, okay. So there's there's a difference between historians and philosophers here. I think, and um, also um, a disclaimer. Uh, I think it's really difficult to speak in the name of all historians of science and all philosophers of science. There's all <laughs> kinds of people there, right? Uh, so these are stereotypes a bit, I think. And I think you're going to find philosophers or historians who are going to uh, really strongly disagree with whatever I'm going to say here. Um, so yeah, keep keep that in mind. Um, so in my experience, what what you have with historians is that they're um, they're really they're really careful about making normative judgments and about making these kind of grand narrative arguments. So for example, I think when, when you think of history of science, many people will think, think of uh, Thomas Kuhn, right? With uh, the structure of scientific revolutions. And this kind of a really big account of the structure of whole science and how science changes as, as a whole thing, right? Yeah, um, I, I, I wish you could have seen both Sam and I did a big shrug, um, <laughs> but I'm sure uh, most of our listeners will have read uh, this as, as well. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> oh, but so what I, what I was going to say is that most historians of science nowadays don't write these kinds of books, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they, they don't they don't give like these really, really big accounts. It's, it's mostly what, what historians call micro histories. So you're going to have, uh, and these are, don't get me wrong, these are really great works, I think. Like, so if when somebody writes like a really micro history of, I don't know, the kind of department structure that was there at Harvard in the 50s and the 60s, uh, and that produced a lot of important things for the 20th century, I'm talking about um, Joel Isaac's book called Working uh, Knowledge here. Um, so he, he, he's a historian who writes this book about one important university like Harvard, but it's really focused on basically like 10, 15, 20, uh, usually guys in the 50, 50s and the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. um, who kind of came up with a different way of doing their science and philosophy. Uh, and this is very unlike to the kind of thing that I wanted to do with my project, right? Um, because I didn't want to talk about the history of social psychology or clinical psychology uh, or, I don't know, um, uh, priming or something like that. But I wanted to talk about the discipline as a whole. Um, so this is something that philosophers are more, much more comfortable doing, right? Making these uh, normative big judgments. Um, so my project was really in between, it, it, I had kind of a psychologist's questions, a philosopher's motivation for making normative judgments, but I wanted to do historical work. Um, so it doesn't fit any of those little boxes in the end, it's something in between, I think. Uh, Truly interdisciplinary then. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah, because I ended up doing scientometrics and this kind of big data analysis and uh, all, all kinds of things in the end, yeah. Yeah, I've been wow. flicking through your um, dissertation because I, I couldn't make it to um, your defense because I was at a, at a workshop, but um, the dissertation is really nice and um, there's, yeah, there's, there's so much in here I've not read even um, a fraction of most of it, but do you want to, uh, like, do you have a way of, um, giving a brief summary to uh, our listeners so that they can decide whether or not they would like to uh, follow up on some link that they can find online? Sure, sure. Oh, yeah, also about the link. I need to put the dissertation in, in the Utrecht repository. I am a very bad open science supporter here because it's still not. In, <laughs> I've been getting uh, angry emails from the librarian for a couple of weeks, but I've been in a post PhD slump and I haven't done anything. Yeah, so there's going to be a link. You don't want to make the librarian angry. Yeah, exactly. No, I love librarians. They're my best friends, so I don't want to make them angry. I've, um, I've started valuing librarians a lot more in the last year since I've gotten into open science. Like, they're, yeah. they're, they're like, properly good people. Yeah. <laughs> Heroes. Yeah, yeah. And anyway. they, they, know, they know a lot. I got a lot of support from librarians uh, during my PhD, uh, so I really uh, learned to appreciate them. Hmm. Um, anyways, yeah, so the, the outline of the thesis. So um, the thesis was basically, um, as I said, disciplinary formation of psychology as science from the 1950s to today, to the, up to the replication crisis, and including the replication crisis. 
Um, and uh, what I did, I focused on two things. I focused on one end on the journals and the literature, and on the other end on textbooks. Um, so my problem here was that if you want if you want to write this kind of a big historical account, you have a huge problem with sources. So um, it's very difficult to go to a single archive or to a couple of archives and to produce this kind of a big account uh, without deforming the story, basically. So I can either write a small history or choose different kinds of sources to write this. Um, so that's what I did. Um, I did. Um, I was working with um, a really, really great scientometrician from Leiden University. Uh, they have a really cool center. It's called Center for um, Science and Technology Studies at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. Um, and it's basically scientometricians who um, get a really bad rep for impact factors and all those things that open science folks hate. Uh, but on the other hand, they're, they're the kind of uh, uh, librarians 2.0, right? They do these really big, large-scale citation studies of whole literatures. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I used one of the softwares and approaches for uh, literature analysis from Scientometrics and applied it to a historical archive of psychologist literature. Um, so basically what I did is um, I uh, downloaded all the abstracts and the titles of everything that was published and indexed in PsycInfo of APA from the 1950s to the end of the 90s um, and did a term analysis on all those abstracts and titles. That's more than half a million articles, basically. Um, so that was one part. Uh, sorry, sorry, I'm gonna stop giving my commentary. <laughs> this just sounds really awesome already. Uh, please keep on going. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that analysis—it's on one end, it's really cool. On the other hand, it's kind of—I'm not going to say basic, but it, it, when you start doing it, you realize what are the really strong limitation about the limitations about trying to make inferences about whole literatures or disciplines based on these kinds of indicators. Are those um, the colorful uh, figures, by the way? Yeah. Uh, about sort of halfway through the book. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So they're, they're, the term maps are basically um, so you you mine the terms that are mentioned that are that are used in titles and abstracts and of, of all those articles, um, and then you map them in in like a two dimensional map, where the distances between terms are the 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 co-occurrence. So the the more often two terms appear in the same titles and abstracts, the closer the terms are going to be. The less often they appear in the same article, the farther uh, farther in between there's going to be a space. So basically, you get this huge bubble where the distances between terms uh, signify their connection in the literature as a whole. Uh, and if you apply this kind of an analysis to the literature as a whole, you basically get a snapshot uh, of everything that was mentioned in the literature in, in the period you're looking at. Um, so this this is actually published. So the special issue just came out in uh, History of Psychology. It's a journal published by the APA, um, and the article where we describe this whole procedure and the maps and offered an interpretation of it is uh, is published there with really three cool commentaries from from other historians who commented on the method and this kind of digital humanities approach and et cetera, et cetera. So. I mean, I've wrote it, so of course I'm recommending it, but if anybody's interested, it's there. Um, so that was one part of the dissertation. The other part was focusing on textbooks, um, and that part is, I found really weird for psychologists, I think, um, because what I did, you would expect me to take all the textbooks that were used, so I focused on under uh, textbooks used in undergraduate uh, introductory courses, so the kind of first course in the United States, that would be like Psychology 101. So the first course that you would get in psychology when you enroll um, in an undergraduate or you were thinking about majoring in it. Um, so what you would expect me, for me to take the whole period and take, take all the textbooks that appear in that, but I didn't take that approach um, because I wasn't interested in like this kind, kind of comprehensive study of all the textbooks. Um, but I was interested in the kind of image of psychology that appears on this really, really basic or simplified level in undergraduate courses in the period. So I basically took one big American textbook 
that's published from 1952 up to today. So it has like, I analyzed 13 editions, but it has more than 20 in the whole period. Um, so you have basically one textbook, that, textbook that's republished for 70 years, right? Uh, and it gives like an, an account of what psychology is. And I did like a close textual analysis of what this image of psychology is in the whole period. And um, yeah, that's basically the dissertation. There's this last part that's wholly and completely about the replication crisis. Um, and it tries to take up these kind of accounts that I produced in, in both the textbook analysis and in the, and in the literature analysis to see um, what is the kind of psychology that appears in the debates among people involved in the replication crisis? So, like, uh, we call them the reformers, right? All these reformers, you guys, who are trying to reform how psychology is being done. Uh, you produce endless amounts of normative accounts of what is good research. Um, and this is really cool for historians and philosophers. You're basically doing our work. Um, <laughs> Or, or in a sense, you're producing kinds of accounts of science that we usually have to like suss out uh, out of a different kind of writing. But when there's a time of crisis, like historians and philosophers love scientific crisis, um, because then you get scientists who become a bit more philosophical, maybe start talking about like the fundamentals of their uh, disciplines and the fundamentals of their research practices, basically. Yeah, so that's the dissertation. Yeah, in short, I don't. It, it wasn't very short. I apologize for that. <laughs> no, nice. That was a good, good summary. Um, the, the the textbook thing I found very interesting because I so I had a look at that I think and I think it said something like that that the textbooks are different in philosophy from oh, sorry in psychology from what they are like in other sciences. Yeah, um, there's really great research that I used here from um, I think she's uh, based in the UK, uh, Professor Mary Smythe. She's a psychologist, actually, who wrote really three great articles about this, how textbooks in psychology are very different. She compared it to textbooks in biology and statistics. Um, and what you find in textbooks in psychology is that they are, as Smythe calls it, um, textbooks of an uncertain science. Um, so what happens is if, if you take like a really famous account of... of um, how facts are presented in textbooks is uh, from a guy called Bruno Latour. Maybe you've heard of him. He's quite famous in SDS, Science and Technology Studies. He's one of the founders of the whole thing. But anyways, he gives an account of facts in textbooks. And he says that facts, how they're presented and how they're written out, basically solidify um, on a trajectory from lab reports to journal articles to textbooks. So in the, like, the exchanges within the lab, facts are really uncertain. So basically facts almost don't exist. Like scientists are really uncertain what a scientific fact is there. When it's written into a journal article, it's hedged a bit less. So there's less qualifications of facts. And when it enters a textbook, basically it solidifies, as Latour calls it. Like the fact is presented as part of the world, basically. This is where the scientists are like, yeah, we're sure about this part. These are the facts that our science produces. Well, this is how it works in biology, but it doesn't work like that in, in psychology textbooks. So in psychology textbooks, facts are always hedged and presented with like um, citations and they're like in APA style with references and with explanations of the experiments that produce them and uh, really describe how the fact was made so the reader who is the student basically, can make the judgment whether to believe the fact or not. So even on the level of textbooks, psychologists kind of present their facts and their science in an un uncertain way. Um, that which really, is not really? I, was, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought so. Well, I, it, I, it really I, resonates with me though. So I, I, do, I do first year psychology teaching in the Oxford system. That means that I don't actually give the lectures, but I do two-on-one, three-on-one tutorials as such. And all they get taught is every time we, we don't talk about, yeah, we don't talk about facts. We talk about arguments and, and experiments and, you know, they are judged on can they criticize experiment? You know, can they think about better experiments? And so we almost don't really teach, 
teach them a lot of facts as such. And then we also do a bit more biology heavy, for example, perception tutorials later on in the term, which I'm currently doing now. And there you see that the style of teaching changes because like, you don't say, oh, you still a bit, we still talk a bit about theories of color vision and stuff, but there are a lot more facts involved. But I don't know, Sophia, yeah. you wanted to disagree. Yeah, I mean, so when I say facts, um, it's what it's what psychologists would call constructs, basically. Um, so, like, when you read a biology textbook for undergrads, um, they're just gonna give you a definition of what, like, a growth hormone is, or, or I don't, what a certain area of the brain is. So they're gonna say this is what it is, this is how we describe it, this is its function, this is etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So you're gonna have this very strong language that doesn't hedge. Uh, while in psychology, you're going to have uh, like uh, this is this is what an attitude is and this is how we describe it. And these are the kind of experiments that we do to, to make this description. So there, there's really it's not that um, it's not that one thing is presented in biology, but it's not presented in psychology. Both pre present kind of research results, just the way that psychologists go about presenting it in textbooks according to Smyth's argument, and I tend to agree, is very different than from how biologists or statisticians do that. And it goes to the level of, when you look at psychology textbooks, uh, when facts from biology or facts from statistics are presented, they're not hedged in this way. So when psychological knowledge is presented, psychologists tend to hedge it and qualify it and, um, as Latour would say, give the history of the making. So exactly do that give the context of the theory, the kind of experimental setups, the paradigms, the kind of ways that these facts are tested and researched. While when it comes to a biological fact on this level, they're not hedged. They're just, they, they, they just are, basically. Hmm. Um, well, no, I, 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 I agree that there's a difference in, in the structure of how mm -hmm. it's presented. Um, but I, I was just basically, what I was disagreeing with, with, with was more like the sort of the effect that that has. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I didn't go into that. I, I agree with that. So um, what these historians would say, and I would tend to agree again, um, is that it's not that these facts are presented in a different way because they are um, um, like uh, uh, epistemologically different in the sense that their psychological facts are something radically different than facts from the other sciences. Um, but it's more about what will persuade the student about it. So uh, what Smite would say, um, and I also argue that in my PG dissertation, is that um, like when you're, when you're an undergraduate student in physics and you're reading a textbook that's, or a signed reading that's spe specifically made for students, um, and when it gives a description of a black hole, it's not like you have like a, a everyday experience of a black hole. So you're going to read the scientific description and you're going to be like, nah, the last time I saw a black hole, it was this and that, and this textbook is full of shit. Oh, I, I'm not, <laughs> can I swear? I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so it's not like we have everyday experience of black holes or quarks or atoms or whatnot. But when you're giving a psychological description or a psychological fact, everybody can say no. Like, no, like a five-trait five, five structure of personality, my grandma has six traits or something <laughs> like that, right? Or, so we all have access to our psychological reality, right, to our, to our minds. So it's very easy for a layman or a student to disagree with a scientific account. It takes a bit more persuading. Um, to persuade the student. So there's all kinds of reasons why psychologists would hedge, while biologists wouldn't hedge, or why, why psychologists would hedge their facts, but not the facts of biologists or statisticians. Yeah. Hmm. Well, should we take a small break to digest such amazing information? <laughs> you are listening to Reproducibility serving you discussions of important issues in science and psychology one mug of tea at a time. Do you like the taste of our podcast? Give us a follow on Twitter at reproducibility, rate us on iTunes, and tell other early career researchers about us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over the next weeks, we will also release some special tea flavours, which are small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. 
If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Welcome back to episode 11 of Reproducibility. We've been talking about philosophy of science, history, textbooks, um, and an altogether pretty much amazing PhD thesis by by the sounds of it. Um, even we before we head on to um, looking a bit more about kind of open science and, and conclusions you can draw there. So you spent, how long did you spend looking at this one textbook over the ages? <laughs> yeah, so, so of my time or the textbook time? Your time. Uh-huh. Um, so I basically did like um, about one and a half years uh, with, with one textbook, but that's on and off. So Mm. Um, research in philosophy and history of science, it's basically just reading, so um, it's very difficult to measure how much time you spent on doing something. Mm. I ended up writing two articles out of it, which are quite different. Um, so I, that's the first part of my PhD, I spent the first year work, reading and working on this, and the second article I wrote uh, just as I was finishing, so I would say mm. a year and a half. That, that's like hats off <laughs> one half years. By, by the way did you did you have any background in philosophy uh, or philosophy of science or his history before you started your phd or was that all from your master's thesis oh yeah that's that's a, that's a great question so i i suffer from an extremely debilitating imposter syndrome that's multiplied by the number of disciplines i ended up getting into <laughs> uh, <laughs> so no so i my my master's and my bachelor's was like general psychology. Um, I was I wanted to get into like a philosophy minor, but it was impossible because of the university set up in Zagreb. Uh, so I did uh, basically um, a lot. I organized extracurricular reading groups um, when I was doing my bachelor's and my master's. So it was mostly informal, my education in it. Um, so when I started my PhD, I basically spent the first year just trying to learn to speak the languages of all these people I ended up uh, talking to and reading. Um, and I must say, it was really nice being in Utrecht uh, for that, um, because they have a marvelous center for history and philosophy of the sciences and the humanities. It's called the Descartes Center. Um, and it's this kind of an institution where they call it a virtual institution. It's not an institute that has a building and, and staff, but it's like a place where all the philosophers and historians from across the university get to meet and talk to each other. Um, so you get like historians and philosophers of physics, of psychology, of biology, of sociology, of um, vet veterinary science or whatnot. Um, so I basically talked to these guys for a year, read, uh, attended their seminars and et cetera to, to get up to speed and to learn uh, uh, these new disciplines. Yeah. Wow, I, I'm yeah. I just just I am yeah. That that sounds. I'm I'm just amazed. I, I I'm lost for words, and I'm not normally lost for words. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really. I mean, it's a really great place. I mean, th those four and a half years. I think for me as a really young a young person who had this kind of research interest that I thought I would never be able to find a way to work on it or to get this kind of education in it. I think this is really something special that, that I ended up finding and, and it was really, really a great experience. Yeah. Well, and it, it sounds kind of like the academia kind of wish a PhD were, you know, I often see me, like my experience entering a PhD, but people in who I see every day kind of entering in our department, you know, you're kind of, you only have three years, um, you're, you're on the grindstone, you don't have even time to think of a bit of you know, further than the little subfield you've already chosen because you're told that you need to brand yourself and, yeah. you know, and I think that that causes a lot of these problems because I think only once you start interacting with others and, you know, I'm, I'm no good at interacting really interdisciplinarily, but even just in, for me in psychology, starting to be on, this was mainly through Twitter that, that happened to me, but that you when you see that other people talk different languages and, and have different ideas, and that's how you start actually recognizing when things go wrong. Because if, you, if you're like a horse with the flaps on your eyes and you're just going ahead, you're just gonna, you're probably going to make, 
you know, you're going to do the same mistakes without even knowing that they're mistakes. So, it's, yeah, it, it sounds amazing. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. With, I mean, it's so I painted a really rosy picture of it <laughs> now. I think it's also like hugely, hugely taxing on like, um, um, like you, you very often feel like, I mean, you're, you're young, so you're at the beginning of your career. Um, and you're thrown to the wolves, basically, maybe, uh, in, in, in a sense, like, so you're in this really huge context where people, you can barely understand what people are saying for half the time. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite a struggle um, doing it like this, I think. Uh, so I think some people would prefer it in this way. Some people would prefer something much more structured, I think, um, mm. with, with much more direction and much more, I, I think, it really worked for me nicely, but I'm, I'm, I can imagine that some people would find it really um, um, suffocating, maybe, mm -hmm. or, or very difficult to find your way in something, something like this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, in the last couple of minutes, I, I think, at least I hope that our listeners would agree that it would be really interesting to hear a bit of the general conclusions that you found doing all this really cool work, uh, cross-disciplinary um, you know, what can, what have you learned, which, what you think psychologists should know about, you know, our discipline and how we do things and, and how that has developed historically, I guess. Yeah. So some of the conclusions that I reached, I mean, um, one of, uh, one of the, one of the things that I find, um, um one of the things that I, I kind of uh, realized is that we need to read more psychologists. <laughs> I know that this, this conclusion sounds very obvious and, and stupid, but when I realized that um, during my PhD and, and started to interact with historians and philosophers, I started reading a ridiculous number of books, um, which during my master's, um, I was reading a lot of articles and a lot of uh, journal literature, basically. Um, but I didn't read books um, and my awareness of even like psychologist history and like philosophical fundamentals was very limited in, in that sense. Uh, so that's a very broad conclusion, uh, more specific conclusions. Um, so um, psychology as a discipline is really, um, it's, it's really interesting in how it formed and what it is by the end of the 20th century that I think uh, many of us are completely unaware uh, how it came to be what it is nowadays. Uh, I know that I was when I was starting my PhD. Um, um, I didn't know I didn't know much, that much about it as a trained psychologist. Um, and um, my conclusions are basically very much aligned to um, the kind of historical research that historians of psychology have been producing since the 1990s onwards. There was this huge um, shift in how history of psychology was done in the 80s and the 90s. Um, they call it, um, um, okay, I have a brain freeze now. Um, uh, historians of psychology call it um, uh, the new history of psychology, of course. Um, and uh, what, what happened there is uh, that they started talking about the science of psychology not, not as kind of an abstract collection of methods or theories, but as a kind of a social activity and a collection of practices that psychologists perform when they enter laboratories. Um, and like a really, really great book on this, that it's, that it's a very dense read, but I found it extremely illuminating as one of the first books that I read into this is uh, Kurt Danziger's uh, Constructing the Subject from 1990. Um, and uh, so, what, what my why is my conclusion aligned to this? Um, so, the research practices of psychologists um, and many of the things that psychologists do nowadays uh, is basically produced in the context of 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, American scientific psychology. Uh, so, many of the things that we see as givens or as the things as the only ways to do things were uh, social institutions that were put into place in, in a time and in a place and for a reason. And what do I mean? So more specifically, like operationalization of constructs or construct validity theory, um, null hypothesis significance testing, um, um, the idea that the, the literature uh, as a collection of journals 
is a repository of theories and that we keep theories in the literature and that we need to add to the literature to expand our knowledge base. All these things were not like um, there since forever. Uh, so there, these, these conceptions and understandings of what psychology is as a science were produced in a time and a place. Um, and nowadays, they might be extremely dysfunctional, uh, right? Um, I mean, you could say, and some historians would argue, that they were dysfunctional when they were put into place. So uh, if you read something like the history of operationalizations and operationalism, it's fascinating, right? Where does operational operationalism come from? Uh, you guys get to learn that. I know that I didn't learn it as a psychologist. No, no. no for, I, know, I know what you mean by history of... I think it's a fair assumption that an undergraduate degree teaches you next to nothing. That, yeah. That's basically but, the conclusion I'm coming to. Yeah, but my, I didn't learn that in my master's either. So I don't think most of my professors knew where did operational definitions come from and how did they agree on construct validity theories and how, when did psychologists start talking about constructs as something that they research, right? Um, so this is a really, really important question, right? Um, and I know for me as a psychologist, when I realized that this was something that we need to agree on, my mind was blown basically. So I was like, so there were scientific psychologists at some point who didn't talk about constructs. How did that even, even work, right? What, what, where did it come from? And I think this is really the power of, of good history of science with philosophical sophistication because it kind of uncovers um, old contingencies, like possible paths that these disciplines could have taken but didn't, and that have completely disappeared. So we're not aware that these were contingencies at some point, looking at it from, from our perspective nowadays. Um, okay, I started ranting again, and you asked me about specific conclusions. This is what you get when you talk to uh, philosophers and historians, I, I think. You ask them for specific conclusions, and they rant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, my conclusions were um, very much focused into, into the current replication crisis. Um, so, and I think that really nicely segues into, into the, the second part of our conversation, and that's more about uh, open science and, and replicability crisis, right? Um, basically, um, my conclusions uh, boil down to calling to research psychologists to um, be more um, open-minded um, about the kind of things uh, that they use when they think about their research practices. Um, like, there are many humanities disciplines uh, that would uh, provide great source of thinking material and models and ways of thinking about psychological phenomena that are usually inaccessible to psychologists. Like. Um, uh, history of psychology is a great example. Um, so there's, for example, uh, many critical social psychologists, many critical health psychologists and many critical social psychologists in the 70s and the 80s became historians of psychology because they couldn't do the work that they wanted to do in their subdisciplines. So suddenly they started writing these kinds of histories that are super relevant for contemporary social psychologists but are not usually read by them. Um, so yeah. You make you you actually make me want to go into the library, and you give me a reading list. <laughs> and I, the next day, I'll call you up and be like, I don't understand anything. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, really, Ivan, do you do you have any uh, like what what would be your your main tips for any uh, scientists wanting to to get yeah to get some kind of insight from philosophy or from uh, from history mm -hmm. for for their own work. So for philosophy, uh, the thing with philosophy is that it's mostly written by philosophers of natural sciences. So it's, it's nice to read, but I always get frustrated as a psychologist with trying to learn something about psychology and they only produce examples from physics or biology. Or, or oh, something. and we already have enough physics envy as it is. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think this just exacerbates this kind of physics envy. Um, and the thing is that uh, if you look at history of philosophy of science, um, uh, it's a story of a discipline being liberated from physics, basically. So in, in the beginning, most of the philosophers of science were talking just about physics. Then they switched to biology at some point in the 70s, but they haven't switched to the social sciences still. 
uh, for the most part. There are some good philosophers of social science. But anyways, so what would be good suggestions? Um, so I mentioned Danziger already. He's a historian. Um, yeah, um, I found... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to think about it. I mean, my, my dissertation has a really humongous reference list and I tried to keep I tried tried to keep everything that I've read during my four years there and that I collected it on the way basically um, so if you're interested in in these more methodological questions I think there's there's a good list of, of philosophers and historians there like a contemporary philosopher that I like a lot is um, Uliana Feist from uh, University of Hanover in Germany uh, she does uh, work. She's a philosopher and a psychologist who does work on operationism, for example. And I learned a lot of stuff that I mentioned here from her and, and her writing. Another guy who's really interesting is uh, Chris Green. I think he comes to SIPS and to all the open science events. He's also a psychologist and a historian in York University in Toronto. Um, so there's there's really a lot of people uh, who are interesting to read. Um, um, and write in a quite a different way than we're used to. And I think this is the biggest barrier in, of entry, basically. Um, I know for me, uh, it was very difficult to take seriously this kind of humanities research that's written in a completely different register and uses different kinds of ways of producing evidence and about being empirical, right? Because for me, empirical was being quantitative, and that's just not how other disciplines necessarily work. Yeah. So, should we? Um, should, should we? Do we have? Do you have enough time to get, uh, get into some open science things as well? Well, yeah. well, or we need to. We need to invite even back to another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can do another episode only on open science stuff if you want. Yeah. Because <laughs> we are now at fifty minutes, so I think our listeners will probably be getting a bit tired. So. Um, I think I mean, could we just do another episode on open science with Ivan? I think that'd be really interesting. Sure, sure. I mean, it would be cool. So I have um, I have a paper that uh, was accepted for publication in theory and psychology that's completely under replication prices, and that I would love to send to you two guys so you can disagree with me actually. So I don't ah, nice. <laughs> well, yeah. so I, I think the plan the plan can be you know we'll get our listeners to send them some questions as well. Maybe have a think about history and philosophy of science, and then we'll. We'll talk yeah. more about open science at another day. Yeah, that sounds great. Sounds fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. So should we end with the uh, one question that we cannot forget to ask our guests um, about uh, what kind of advice you would give to um, early career researchers? Yeah. Um, and especially what would be really nice. Struggling, oh, in, uh, struggling with the kind of things that you were struggling with when you were doing your master's thesis um, or sort of thinking about PhDs like, ah, what is this? Yeah, yeah. maybe um, even thinking about the interdisciplinary thing yeah. as well because i imagine mm -hmm. that's something that a lot of people struggle about yeah um so with interdisciplinary there's two things that I, I would emphasize with interdisciplinarity i think uh interdisciplinarity is the the sexy word we should all be interdisciplinary and it's so great to be interdisciplinary and i think it's really great for the work so it's super intellectually stimulating it really feeds your curiosity and the kind of things that we uh, signed up to do when we signed up for academia, right? Uh, but on the other hand, it also produces scholars with very weird research profiles. So now I'm, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a historian, I'm not a philosopher, I'm something in between, and I can basically look for work in two places in the world. Um, so it really puts you in this kind of awkward position where you have to build a career out of it, which is not necessarily bad, but it's something to think about beforehand, uh, to have a good base in one discipline maybe, so you can market yourself as, 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 as an expert in, in one discipline and not a jack of all trades. Um, which, I, I, it's the kind of advice that I didn't receive from more established scholars, because for them, they have jobs, so interdisciplinary is great for them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. And the second thing is that for me, like. Um, in the past four years, I had, I think, like at least 20 or 30 uh, conversations about supervision with my P fellow PhD students and, and postdocs. Um, and uh, for me, it was really important to realize that um, um, when it comes to PhD supervision, some of us are lucky, some of us are unlucky, some of us are really unlucky with the kind of supervisors that we get. 
But whatever the case is, you are the person who is managing the relationship, right? So it's, it's not this thing where you have a professor and they know what they're doing and they're going to guide you through a project and you're going to finish it. I don't think that happens ever. Um, so it's, it's about you taking control over it and just um, making it work and managing the professor or your supervisor. And um, when I started to think about it in this way, I had a really productive and great relationship with, with two supervisors. So is, so is this something that is, uh, that is very difficult for people then who, uh, who work very um, sort of like truly interdisciplinary, not like, oh, mainly in one thing, but then also dabble in other things. Um, and like, do you think this is changing with, um, with things like the open science movement, that there, there is more need and uh, place, a sort of space for people who are working in an interdisciplinary, sorry, truly interdisciplinary way? I think I think there's definitely a need, and I think if you talk to anybody at a university department that's really that cares about their research profile or to good to 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 do good science, they really care about interdisciplinarity. But one thing is to care about it, and the other is to create a kind of institutional framework to accommodate for it. Mm. And I think the institutional framework, especially when you're early in your career, is still quite lacking. Um, so it's really it's uh, my feeling is that it's even more difficult difficult for me to navigate academia with the kind of profile that I have uh, than it would be if, if I were a psychologist. But I might be completely wrong. This might be just me whining about my subject, subjective problems and thinking it's easier for everybody else. I don't know. Well, I mean, it, it's definitely, um, there's definitely less survivor bias, what, um, yeah. seeing how you're still in it kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, um, I think, yeah. Uh, no, I'm still in it for <laughs> now. We'll see. <laughs> um, well, I I think we should um, then probably stop here for today. Thank you so much for talking to us. And um, if if you truly do want to uh, come back to the podcast, that would be amazing, so that we can yeah. talk more about the open science side of things. Yeah. Because um, I think this will be very interesting to our listeners, um, sort of getting this very different view on things. Yeah, um, I would love to. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, then uh, we'll see you back soon. Thank you.